Well, our text this, uh, this morning is actually two texts, but we're actually using these texts to guide us on a, a matter that, uh, or a doctrine that you may often hear about. You hear the words, but we never really have heard anyone spend much time on them, and that's this doctrine of common grace. And I want to introduce it. I'm going to read a sonnet. I'm going to test you now. For those of you who took probably in senior year of high school, you probably took English literature and you had to read some sonnets, or maybe you did it in your freshman year of college. Let's see if you can recall this sonnet I'm going to read to you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and truckless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, the shattered visage lies whose frowned and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that his sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You recognize the sun? It's Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. And it's a marvelous commentary, isn't it, on the hubris of man. It could well have been entitled Vanity of Vanities, because it really fits in well with the teaching of Ecclesiastes. Here's the, here's the folly of man who believes in his own ability that he can produce this, this lasting legacy that's going to shake and cause people to tremble as they remember him for ages and ages. Vanity of Vanities. It's a great biblical message. And yet the man who wrote the poem did not believe in God or at least certainly did not believe in the Christian God. So where did he get such insight? How did he obtain such creative powers to, to write a sonnet that is a lasting legacy to him, that we that are read in English courses and recited uh, decades afterwards? Now here's another quandary for me. Back in Philadelphia, Ginger and I, we had a neighbor who does not know Christ. She is kind. She is generous. Whenever she sees us, always inviting us up for food and bringing down food to us. So how is that? How can one who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you know, when Christ says you've got to be born again, that's what regeneration means, the Holy Spirit coming in there. How can someone who's never had that experience yet possess much of the same qualities of those who have been regenerated and who who follow after Christ. This is the problem of good. How is it that the dark world possesses so much divine truth, so much light? How can those who are unregenerated, nevertheless, they live in many ways according to the divine law? I mean, they're moral people. They're good folks. 
Indeed, how can unregenerate people do what is right while, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, that we sometimes regenerate neighbors do what is wrong? How can beauty, goodness, and truth be known and be expressed so eloquently by those who do not know the God of beauty, goodness, and truth? And the problem of good strikes us and challenges our beliefs in two ways. One is this. When we begin to think about this seriously, we start to ask how necessary the gospel is to possess a fulfilled life. You know, we're always hearing, we're always saying, well, a person can never really be happy without the gospel. That the, the person, without the benefit of being regenerated, again, being born again by the Holy Spirit, you know, they're just stuck in their, their sins, they are sinners, terrible people. And yet, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we all know unbelievers of the gospel. And for all that we can observe, live productive, and happy lives. I mean, at least as productive and happy as, as ours. So how necessary is it? How necessary is the gospel for an abundant life? Now, the second tender spot that the, this reality, and I mean the reality of understanding that they're good people, what it hits us most of all is our own beliefs about, well, about punishment, about hell. Now, when we look at ourselves, most of us, we're willing to say, hey, we're convicted by our own sinfulness, uh, by our own personal guilt. We are thankful to Jesus Christ for saving us. But then when we look at our neighbors, I mean, our good neighbors, our nice neighbors, we have difficulty, don't we, trying to think how could they end up there? Is it really just of God to condemn them to eternal punishment? But... But if he doesn't, if he doesn't condemn them to hell, if they are accepted into heaven, or let's say at least avoid hell's flames, then, then again, how necessary is the gospel? And so the problem of good. So what's the answer? Well, it comes from a little discussed doctrine that is called common grace. And what is common grace? Well, you can, you can sum it all up in the, in the phrase of another hymn. You know the hymn, We Plow the Fields and Gather. And there's that refrain, All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. That's common grace. God sends good gifts to both the regenerate, to those who have come to know Jesus Christ and follow him, and he has sent it to the unregenerate to those who do not know Christ, to those who never will receive the gift of salvation. Now let's consider how this doctrine then plays out. And you can divide it into kind of two parts. There's this restraining activity of God, and then there is the gifting in which he gives blessings. Let me talk about the restraining part first of all. Some of you will remember there's this song, the rocker who proclaims, I'm bad to the bone. Well, he's a good theologian. Scripture agrees with that assessment. Not because he is a rocker who gets his way with women, but because, well, ever since Adam and Eve's fall, their descendants have had a thin condition that gets down to the bones. 
Now, theologians describe this sinful condition as total depravity. Now, that can be a misleading term because it sounds like, well, every person acts as depraved as he or she can be, but that's not really what it's, what it's talking about here. Our problem is not that we act as badly as we can, but that sin has so infected our hearts that everything we do, no matter how good it is, has some kind of sin component in it. And to put it simply this, we're, we're not pure. Okay. Our best thoughts, our best deeds have the sin infection. So why doesn't sin infection take over? You know, why don't we become completely depraved? Well, the answer, again, lies in common grace. God has exercised such grace in all of us so as to restrain the sin. Okay, he's put a wall about it. And so though we truly are born to be wild, God's grace restrains how wild we can become. Now, how does God restrain sin? Well, one way he does it is by divinely instituting things like government, the family. God also uses the restraining influence of a, of a civilization's culture. We live in a culture. There are certain things we don't do because it's a taboo in our culture. And so that culture kind of civilizes us. It, it restrains our wild impulses. But beyond using these kind of outward things to moderate our tendency, God restrains our very hearts. And the clearest teaching about this is in that famous passage in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. It's the one that traces this downward spiral of, of men and women. And three times while uh, Paul is writing that, he says, God gave them up to indulge further in sin. Now, what he's indicating here is that God has been restraining them. He's been restraining their hearts and their minds. He had placed a check on how far they could go, and they could not go further until he released them, until he gave them up. This is the case for all of us. Without God restraining our sin impulse, we truly could become all that we can be. We truly can become totally depraved, totally evil. So there's that element in which God is restraining us. God is also restraining himself. He places a restraint upon himself. He He restrains his just wrath that he could visit upon our sin. The psalmist in Psalm 103, verse 10 He gives thanks that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Sure, if he did, we're all gone. Well, why doesn't God do that? Well, one important reason is God is giving people an opportunity to repent, to turn to him for salvation. That's what Peter writes about in 2 Peter 3.9. Paul writes about it as well in, in Romans 2, 4. And in fact, he's warning some people about this. He, he writes this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
That's why he's restraining himself. Now, on the other side of the coin, that same patience is providing op- that's providing opportunity for repentance, it's also providing opportunity to allow the sinner, in a sense, to hang himself, to show the true condition of his heart. Because the very next verse, Summerlee explains this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You think you're fine, you think you're okay with God, everything is all right. You're in trouble. You're in trouble if you don't repent because you're just storing up for yourself even greater judgment. Well, whatever all his reasons may be, God's restraint provides opportunity for life to go on. This combination of, of restraint on his own wrath the restraint on our sin, it permits the history of the world to progress. For without that restraint on either activity, human life would have ceased to exist long ago. Either God would have already destroyed the world, or man's own proclivity for evil would have brought self-destruction. Fortunately, God, by his common grace, has restrained this. Now, besides restraining sin and wrath, God, through his common grace, proactively provides good gifts. He does that outwardly and inwardly to the regenerate, to those who know Christ, to the unregenerate. The psalm that I read for the call to worship, Psalm 145.16, says this of God, "You, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of Every living thing. Not just of some. Not just of those who acknowledge you. You provide it for every living thing. Now the most notable references about this are made by Jesus. They're in the text. And again, you're welcome to turn to them. Or you can find them in that insert that's in your bulletin. They're listed there together. And they're in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Let me read, first of all, from Matthew 5, verse 45. Jesus is speaking. For he, God the Father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, here's Jesus' point. He's saying God the Father sends his forth blessings that land on the regenerate and the unregenerate, on the, the wicked and the righteous, all alike. It's not that he can't avoid these stray blessings accidentally falling on the, on the wicked. It's, it's because he's a gracious God. That's why. Now, in Luke 6.35, Jesus presents the same teaching with a little slight variation. He says, But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, pay attention to this, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You hear what he's saying? God is kind to those who do not acknowledge him, to those who will never acknowledge him. He provides gifts to them that they do not deserve. In Acts 14 Paul is preaching, speaking to the residents of a town called Lystrom. 
trying to tell them and get them to worship the true God. And he explains to them God in this way. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's the one God. Now, these blessings that he gave, they, they are these outward blessings just spoken of here, of rain and, and the sun and all these good things that we experience. But he also gives inner blessings, blessings that are the gifts of character and skill. And so, though you have Adam's fall resulting in the, in the marring of the image of God in man, remember, we are made in the image of God And that fall marred that image. Nevertheless, a remnant of that image has stayed in us. And just as dying embers can be blown upon to to rekindle a fire, you can think of it this way, that the Holy Spirit blows upon the embers of God's image in man so that the the faculties of reason, of intelligence and, and moral sense, they function even as that image remains unrestored. So though man, all of us, have become morally infected with depravity, yet God preserves and he kindles virtue and compassion within all of us to a degree. And so common grace thus explains how good can exist, how it can flourish within men and women who are unregenerate, who do not acknowledge him. God has not left them bereft of good qualities. His mercy so works even in the unregenerate as to give the temporal blessings of goodness to each person. And so your unregenerate neighbor is given the blessing of being kind through the kindness of his or her creator. Whether or not that neighbor acknowledges the creator. Now, what other gifts has God granted to all through his common grace? Well, there's a great gift of companionship, family, marriage, friendship. God has granted us government, societies, tribes, civilizations, that we we not only live together, but we can be productive together and provide for common needs and, and enrich our lives. And then there are the gifts of talents, and skills and temperament that that are just distributed indiscriminately among men and women. So God has given the gift of language, be it writing or speaking, such as he gave to Percy Shelley, who, who does not acknowledge him. God created music and distributed the talent of composing it and, and performing it. And so that there are those who have performed great works of music that make us have divine feelings, even those, though those composers do not follow the God. He's given skill in math, in logic, physics, and all other fields, and he's done so liberally, without respect to anyone's status, including their relationship with him. And so such skills have flourished among the unregenerate, unregenerate and the regenerate, so much so that we, we can't discern a pattern, can we? 
of, of why one person is given this gift and another person is given that gift. And a result of all of these provisions is a world and is filled with beauty, isn't it? It's filled with natural beauty and with man-made beauty. Man has invented and produced wonders that inspire, that heal, that preserve, that improve life, to make us feel spiritually ennobled, even as we deny the spiritual. Judge Singh, I was reading when I was preparing on, on this many years ago, and I'm, and I'm reading about reading about Bach, about music. And I'm reading comments from certain folks who are atheists. And they're saying, I tell you, if there's ever a time I'm tempted to believe in God, it's when I'm listening to Johann Sebastian Bach. And so, it touches them, but they can't quite get them. But all of this takes place because, again, of God working in us. The result of these provisions is that most people, most people will not kill, but actually even try to save life. Most people will say please and thank you. At least down here in the south they'll do that. Most people will not cut in line at the store. They won't steal from the store. Most of us feel like we can walk along the crosswalk in front of a car knowing that we're not going to be run over. Whatever may be lurking in our hearts, however depraved the heart may be, most of us experience decent behavior from our neighbors and in turn act decently. And all of this is taking place because of common grace. So that's the doctrine of common grace. How then do we as Christians, how do we live in the light of common grace? Well, for one thing, as we understand this, it frees us up to sincerely, openly admire and respect the good that comes from the unregenerate, from those who deny Christ through common grace. John Calvin, the father of our theology, makes this point in his Institute of the Christian Religion. Let me, let me read a portion from you. This is John Calvin writing. He says, Therefore, in reading secular authors, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, we will be careful, as we will avoid offering insult to him, not to reject or to condemn truth wherever it appears, and despising the gifts we insult to give him. But shall we deem anything to be noble and praiseworthy without tracing it to the hand of God? Far from us be such ingratitude. So what he's saying is, look, as Christians, you know, we, we wonder, don't we, if it's okay to, to read works by non-Christians or, you know, pretty, go see things that are by non-Christians or... You know, it might strike a chord with us, but, but ah, no, that's not, that's not a believer. No, is that okay? Shouldn't we just stick with just Christian artists, Christian authors, Christian musicians? Well, there is good reason to, to 
you know, to read mostly Christian authors, to, you know, go to Christian events. There's good reason for that because it helps keep us grounded and we're not be kind of being blown from one wind of opinion to another. But, but what we're seeing here in this doctrine is that the Holy Spirit does not confine himself to giving gifts of, of perception of the truth and expression of the truth so that it can be found even in those who do not acknowledge the God of truth. By common grace, God has granted unregenerate authors and thinkers and scientists the ability to discern, to illustrate, to reveal not new truth, but truth that is already taught either explicitly or it's in keeping with Scripture, Indeed, God has, through common grace, used the gifts that he's given just indiscriminately to everyone to even supplement what is in his revealed word. It's by common grace God has given us common sense to know how to apply the commands of God. And so when Scripture commands fathers, do not exasperate your children, well, common sense has been relied upon even by the unregenerate father, to know, okay, how do I apply this to this very willful child and this to this very compliant child? Common sense has guided many an unregenerate mother to know when and what to say to her husband when he is oblivious to his exasperating behavior. So likewise, Christian parents can learn from the disciplined studies of even secular psychologists, even secular behavioral specialists who've, you know, who've studied how people react to things, who've studied infants and know what kind of different stimuli that they respond to. We, we can learn from counselors, from business managers, from uh, others who you know, have spent their lives studying how men and women act. Okay. We can learn from them. They can't explain spiritual truth. They can nail down some pretty practical things about the way people live, the way people react. So common grace would even also have us appreciate the role of, let's say, non-Christian rulers and government leaders. It's by the reality of common grace that the Apostle Paul, that he in Romans 13 could tell his folks to submit to the pagan authorities who were serving as servants of God for upholding good and restraining evil. So common grace freezes up and says, yes, you can live in the world. You're not to be of the world, but yes, you may live in this world. It also solves that double-sword dilemma that I talked about in the introduction. It explains how, to, how, how common good exists in those who are unregenerate, how we can accept those equalities, and yet still understand that they are nevertheless condemned in their sins. Common grace solves that dilemma because it gives credit where it is due. It gives it to our creator, to our provider. So we can admire all the qualities, all the gifts of our unregenerate neighbors, because in doing so we are crediting and we are glorifying 
our God whom we know, who gives these common grace blessings. You know, again, just to kind of get back about this worry, this, this very appropriate worry that we have about our neighbors and, and their punishment. I think the mistake that we make psychologically is this. We, we tend to regard the gifts of our neighbors, might be their temperament, their talent, their virtues as some kind of autonomous achievement. I am my own master type thing. We regard them not as gifts, but they're like personal traits or accomplishments that they, they obtain for themselves with, from the help of, of no one, just from their own self-will. Now, the irony of that view is that even, even secularists don't hold to such a view. There is no philosopher, no philosopher today, certainly no scientist today, who upholds this concept of, of self-autonomy. We, you know, we make ourselves who we are. They will attribute most, if not everything, to two things. Our genetic makeup and our environment. How we're raised, what goes on about us. We are who we are because of the forces outside of our control. This is what the secular scientists and philosophers teach us. What common grace teaches us is who controls those forces. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, the answer, of course, is nothing. Everything we have received is from God. And so our nice neighbor is nice because God's spirit constrains her tendency to be selfish, to be cruel. She is nice because God's spirit has granted her a genetic makeup. Maybe gave her wonderful parents. Gave her the experiences that induce her to be nice. That is common grace. And so if that's the case. What we should marvel about is, is not that God would punish good people, but that God would grant good gifts to wicked people, which is what all of us are without Christ. When you think about this, the, as you begin to, you know, to, to reason this out, in God's mercy, in common grace, he grants his enemies. That's, that's what you are when you're, not, when you're under God's wrath. You're under his wrath because you're enemies of God. He grants enemies gifts that induce such a measure of good in them, so much so that we now, we now question God. Well, how can you condemn such good people? We think that we're questioning God's ability to judge wisely. When what's really happening here is that we're questioning his choice to restrain sin and wrath, to give good gifts. I mean, far from questioning God, when we look at our neighbors, we should be glorifying God for keeping sinners from be, becoming worse, for even granting to them a measure of goodness so that their temporal lives are filled with, are not just filled with evil and ugliness. And indeed, we benefit very much from the great blessings that he has given to them. We should be crediting God, not man, for what man has received. And so common grace allows us to appreciate, just appreciate 
the beauty, the blessings that are all about us, either through, through nature or through the gifts that God has given to our neighbors. And the second point is what Jesus had more in mind and what he was impressing upon his disciples when he was speaking of this both in Matthew and in Luke. And it is simply this. We should love our neighbor. That's the context of these passages in Matthew and Luke about God the Father making the Son rise on the, on, or using Jesus' terms, on the evil and on the good, of sending rain on the just and the unjust, of being kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The whole message is that we're to love our neighbors. God is our model. And indeed, what he's saying, it is necessary for us to love our neighbors if we are going to be identified with God the Father. If you're going to be a chip off the old block, you've got to do that. So understand what is being said here. Look, we should desire the salvation of our neighbors. It should always be upon us and praying for them and seeking of that. But our love for them is not to be based upon their prospects for being saved. And there are Christians who calculate. Well, I say, I'll try to be a friend with this person for a while, and if they're saved, great. If I'll give them a certain period of time. If they don't, then I move on kind of someone else. Now, in these passages, Jesus does not call upon us to love our neighbors because, well, we were once like them. He didn't say that. He does not speak of what our love might do for the souls of our enemies. Again, the point is that God, our Father, provides blessings for the evil just as he does for the good. Both receive the benefits of the sun and the rain. He does not discriminate in parceling out uh, the common good gifts to mankind. They just go out to everyone. We then, should not discriminate in showing good and giving gifts to our neighbors. We do not judge who is worthy to receive our blessings. And so be kind to your neighbor, regardless of his creed, his religion, or lack of religion, or race, or gender, or morality, anything that distinguishes him or her. Again, as Jesus would would phrase it, be a good neighbor to anyone. We may not determine what we will do for our neighbor by his faith or lack of faith. We may not determine what we're going to do according to its evangelistic potential. We just love. We're to realize that we as Christians are part of this common grace blessing that we are vital vessels for outpouring of God's common grace. And so we ought to be involved. We ought to be involved in the daily common activities of the world in order that we might be the sun and the rain to the evil and the good and to the just and the unjust. Again, what Christians so often will do is we we have this tendency to, to want to segregate ourselves in a kind of Christian-only societies for our protection and and our comfort zone. We ought to be joining our neighborhood in in civic associations. 
We should patronize the businesses of our neighbors whether or not they have a fish or a cross on their windows. We should strive to be the agents of common grace. We above all people, because we know the bestower of all of these good gifts, and we want to be like our Father. We know the most excellent gift of all, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And who knows? Perhaps our common grace love will be used by the Holy Spirit to transmit the love of God's special grace. When our neighbors see love that is reflective of God the Father, perhaps then they will be demonstrated to that, lo- to that love that is demonstrated on the cross. When they are appreciated for who they are now, when they do not feel like they are a prize to be won, perhaps then, you know, that so-called stubborn spirit, you know, we look at our neighbors and we're always baffled by it. Perhaps that spirit will yield to the mercies of our God. Let's pray. How rich are your mercies, our God, to both the righteous and the unrighteous, to the good, to those who are evil, to those who are wicked. How wondrous are your mercies, and how wondrous is this common grace that you give indiscriminately. How generous. How benevolent you are. May we have that same heart, that same spirit. And look upon our neighbors, all of our neighbors, for everyone is our neighbor. And show the love of our Father. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand.